The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. I want to talk to you today about this parable of Yahweh's vineyard. Now, this parable is found in all the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all cover it. Just give us a little variation here and there. We're primarily, this morning, going to focus on Matthew's account, but we'll draw from the others as well when they differ so we can pick up the differences. Now, this parable of the vineyard gives us the history and the future of the nation Israel from a first century perspective. Now, from our perspective, looking back, this helps us really see the accuracy of the Bible. History plays out just as this parable predicts. Now, to get the context, let's begin with verse 23. It says, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? So we see that Yeshua is in the temple, and he's teaching, and the chief priests and the elders of the people, they come to him, and they approach him, and they begin to question him as far as his authority. In other words, why do you have the right? Who gave you the authority to do this? They say, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Well, Yeshua answered their question with a question about John the Baptist's authority. Yeshua said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, the baptism of John, was it from what source? From heaven or from men? Now, as Yeshua typically did, he got them in a between a rock and a hard place and they refused to answer because no matter which answer they gave, it would have caused a problem. It says, and they began reasoning among themselves saying, well... If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why didn't you believe him? So we really don't, that's not an option. We can't use that one. But if we say it was from men, we fear the people for they regard John as a prophet. And answered Yeshua, they said, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. As they questioned Yeshua's authority, Yeshua pointed them to another picture. It was the picture of the vineyard in verse 33 and following. Now, everyone understood what this vineyard represented. The vine, along with the fig tree, was a symbol of the nation Israel. As a matter of fact, the very temple where Yeshua stood, there was a richly carved grapevine. The grapevine was sculptured around the door which opened into the holy place. It was 70 cubits high. The branches and the leaves of it were made of the finest gold. Now, the grapes were made of very costly jewels. It was first placed there by Herod, but over time, rich and patriotic Jews added to its glory by contributing a new grape or a new leaf. So they kept adding these precious stones. They kept adding these gold leaves. The vine was an exceedingly meaningful symbol to the Jews. So Yeshua gives them this parable. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. 
Now he starts out here by saying, this is a parable. Listen to this parable. Now a parable is a brief story or narrative drawn from human life or nature. It's not relating to some actual event, but it's true to life and concerning something very familiar to the listeners. It's given for the purpose of teaching spiritual truth. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now the etymology, etymological meaning of the word parable is a placing alongside for the purpose of comparison. So he's telling us a parable, he's telling us a story so we can compare things. Now, the intention of parabolic teaching is given by Christ earlier in this gospel in Matthew 13, 11 through 17. He says, first, it's a method of teaching the responsive disciples. In other words, those who are who are in tune spiritually, they get this. But the second intent of the parabolic teaching was to hide the truth from those who are unresponsive. And so aid in the hardening of their hearts as they continue to rebel against God. Now, Bernard Ram, in his book, Protestant Biblical Interpretation, says this of a parable. He says, the golden rule of parabolic interpretation is, determine the one central truth the parable is attempting to teach. Practically all writers on the subject mention it with stress. So that's what we want to do when you're you're reading a parable. You want to find out what is the central message here. Dodd says this, the typical parable presents one single point of comparison. The details are not intended to have independent significance. Many writers have put the rule this way. Don't make a parable walk on all fours. Alright? So your objective as we study a parable is to find the central message, not exactly, you know, this means that and that means this and every detail of the thing, but to find the one central message. Now in this parable, the vineyard is Israel. Well, As a matter of fact, it's my understanding that all the parables are about Israel. The owner of this vineyard is Yahweh. The tenant farmers are the Jewish leaders. And the slaves are the prophets that are sprinkled throughout Israel's history that the leadership has always rejected. The only son, of course, is Yeshua. So here we have a veiled prediction that Yeshua would be killed by the religious leaders of His day. Yeshua's authority comes from His Father who sent Him. Now remember, that's kind of the whole issue of this parable there. Where'd you get this authority? And then He launches into this parable to explain the parable, in this parable, that His authority comes from His Father. Thus, Yeshua is claiming higher authority than those in the Sanhedrin, who were members of, you know, they were the renters, so to speak, in this unfolding plan of God. And He is the owner And they're just renters of this thing. So he's saying, I have a higher authority than you. And for someone to claim higher authority than the Sanhedrin would have been a shock to the first century Jew. All right, the word vineyard here, Yeshua begins his parable with a very familiar hallmark of Middle Eastern agriculture, and that's a vineyard. The text in all caps, why is that? Why is this text in all caps like that? Alright, it's a quote from the Tanakh. The New American Standard does that. I think it's very helpful. Whenever you see something in all caps, they're quoting. So they're letting you know that. And that's good because you should figure out where is this quote from? What's the context of that? He's quoting here from the opening stanzas of the parable from Isaiah chapter 5. But he makes a different application than the one found in that prophecy. His hearers 
would have recognized it from the start. So let's go back to Isaiah 5 and look at the parable. It says, let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my well-beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a vine, a wine vat, in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. That makes sense, right? You, this guy goes through all the trouble building this vineyard. He wants it to produce grapes. But it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless one? Worthless one here is from the Hebrew buhushim. And it means stinking, worthless, can be translated stink berries. In other words, I, I want some good fruit from this and I get buhushim. Rotten, nasty, that's all it's producing. So let me now tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. And I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come upon. And I will charge the clouds to rain no more on it. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel. So we don't have to guess. We don't try to figure out what he's talking about here. He's talking about Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. And for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So what God wanted from his vineyard here was justice and righteousness. That's what he expected from the nation. But all he got was buhushim, corrupt, worthless fruit. Now Yahweh had, at the Exodus, planted Israel as it were. The law of Moses defined that which Yahweh expected from his people. And 700 years later, the Messiah himself amplified that same message as he spoke to the dwellers of Jerusalem and to the men of Judah. He told him another parable. And as he mentioned that buzzword vineyard, they immediately knew what he was talking about. Now, until we get to the end of the stanza here, the words of Christ are almost verbatim. In the case of Isaiah's parable, the vineyard represented the house of Israel and the choice vine, Judah. The point of the parable was that Yahweh had made every provision He could have for Israel as the people of God. He protected them. He nurtured them through many years. Yet the nation produced worthless grapes and would therefore meet with the judgment of Yahweh. Now, it says here that He built a tower. Now, in the Targum of Isaiah, that's the Aramaic paraphrase of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Targum, the tower is interpreted as the temple. Thus, many of the, his listeners would recognize the association of what he was saying regarding the temple and that his words thus included those who ran the temple. So, he gets, they get what he's speaking about. Now, consider this landowner's attention to detail as Yeshua tells the parable. He put a strong wall around it to keep out the wild boars from rooting up everything he planted and to discourage thieves from you know, breaking in and making off of his crops. He dug a pit for the wine press. One would be a shallow pit where the bunches of grapes were crushed and one deeper for the juice to flow into. He built a watchtower for shelter, for storage, 
and a vantage point from which men could see the whole vineyard. In other words, he, he thought of everything. All provision was made for a great harvest and prosperity for the farmers. This was Israel in the Holy Land. He had promised to Abraham when he left Ur of the Chaldees. This was a land that was flowing with milk and honey to which he brought Israel after redeeming them from slavery in Egypt. Now, under Joshua, he planted his people in the land. There he left them for 1,400 years, or as Yeshua says in the parable, he went on a journey. You know, it was very common for the first century for an owner of a vineyard to leave, to go on trips, or not even live in that area. He would simply hire someone, what we would call a manager of the vineyard, and every year a percentage of the produce would go back to the owner. Now, if over a period of five years no produce went back to the owner, the manager could assume ownership of the vineyard. Now, this was put in place in case the owner went on a trip and he died. I mean, they didn't have the communication we have today. And it's hard for us to grasp because we have instant everything. You know, you text somebody and instantly, they didn't, you know, there's no telegrams, no anything back then. So that you go on a trip, something happened to you, no one ever knows. Word never gets back. So they had a provision there. If you didn't hear from the owner for five years, then the ones running the vineyard got to keep it. It would, after five years, it was kind of evident they're not coming back. So they take over ownership other vineyard. It says, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves, the vineyard owner, he put this vineyard in place at harvest, he sent some of his slaves to the vine growers to receive the produce. That makes sense, it's just how it would work. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another, stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Now, the word vine growers here is from the Greek word Georgos, and it refers either to the owner of the farm, or in this case, uh, one who does agricultural work on a contractual basis. So it's translated tenant in NIV, or husbandman in KJV. Then this parable, who do the vine growers represent? They represent the Sanhedrin, or the religious leaders in Israel. That's who the vine growers are here. The vineyard is the nation Israel itself. Somewhere along the way, the vine growers decided they want to be the owners. So they took over the vineyard. Over and over again, God sent prophets who are the slaves of the parable. The nation, through its leaders, consistently rejected the prophets, rejecting them and their message. Rather than responding to them, they would beat them. They would even kill them. Prophet after prophet was sent. And you wouldn't want to be an old covenant prophet. All right? Because... They sent them to him, they're killing him, they're beating them. One example of this uh, would be the 5th century prophet Jeremiah, who received bitter treatment from the religious and political leaders in Judea, often being left dead. He was put in a muddy cistern. Jeremiah 38.6 says, Then they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Melchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse. And they left, let Jeremiah down with ropes down into the cistern where there was no water but only mud and Jeremiah sank into the mud. So that's how they treated God's prophet. Now Jeremiah is going there because God has told him to go and give them the word of the Lord and they just don't want to hear it. So what they do is just 
treat the prophet harshly, try to shut these prophets up. Zechariah also prophesied. And the same thing. He was murdered at the order of Joash, who had turned away from the Lord. Israel and Judah resisted the merciful warnings of the prophets again and again, and just took matters into their own hands. You remember Elijah was driven into the wilderness by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Isaiah, as tradition has it, was sawn in half. John the Baptist had his head removed. Now, you know, we read this stuff in the Scripture, so we're familiar with it. And this morning, as Stan's reading that stuff, you're thinking, okay, this is not the book of Acts. This is not the book of Hebrews. This is today. Christians are still being treated this way. This was the fate of many of the prophets. They spoke for God, and this was the response. The writer of Hebrews put it this way. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Now, commenting on Yeshua's parable here in Matthew 21, Luther said this, If I were God and the world treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. I can relate to that, Luther. You know, that that makes sense, you know, the way they treated God. What would you do if it was your vineyard? Would you send in the troops? Would you round up your militia and march on those vine growers and butcher them all? Listen to what Yeshua says. But afterwards, He sent His Son to them. So He sends the slaves. They beat them. They kill them. So he says, well, what am I going to do? I'll send the son saying, they'll respect my son. What man would ever do that? I mean, if you sent slaves to them and they're killing your slaves and torturing your slaves and beating your slaves, you're not going to send your son. But God did. Look at Romans 5, 6, and 7. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, some would dare to die. You know, one's not going to die for a righteous or a good man, let alone a bunch of murdering, mutinous vine growers. You know what the next verse in Romans says? Romans 5.8. Anybody know that? But God demonstrated His own love toward us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, there never was a more loving father and there never was a more loved son. There had never been a time when the father did not love the son. He was eternally begotten. In the beginning, before anything else began, he was there. And he was loved infinitely and unchangeably and immeasurably by his father. They were always together being loved and loving in return. And Yeshua in this parable is telling His audience that He is not a prophet. He is the Son. And basically, that's the basis of His authority. He owns the vineyard. He was sent by the Father to possess what is His, but they reject Him and put Him to death. It says, but when the vine growers saw the Son, they said among themselves, hey, this is the heir. Come, let's kill Him and seize the inheritance. So instead of respecting the son, the vine growers saw the opportunity 
to take the vineyard for themselves. They probably supposed, they probably assumed that since the son is coming alone, the father must have died. And so they figure all we got to do is kill the son. He's the last heir. And then we can take possession of the vineyard. So they took his son and they killed him. They took him, they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Instead of respecting the son, they kill him. The implication in the story is absolutely clear. Now the son had come to Israel. They were fulfilling this prophetic parable exactly as the Lord described. They had failed to hear the long line of prophets that God had sent. And now they would reject the word of the son. And they're going to kill him. Yeshua is prophesying his own death at the hands of the religious leaders here. And in a few short days from this time, they're going to deliver him over to their own authorities and condemn him to death. So Yeshua is describing to them who they are and what they are doing. And indirectly, he's answering their question, by what authority did he do these things? He says, here's my authority. I am the owner of the vineyard. I am the rightful heir to this vineyard. I'm the beloved son whom the father sent. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Now, if you look at this in Mark's account, it looks as though Yeshua answers this question himself. He asks this question, then he answers it. But in Matthew, it's clear that Yeshua asked the question, but the chief priests and elders are the ones who answer it. So Yeshua asked them, what will he do to those vine growers? Okay, this, this is the story. He sent his prophets. They beat him. They killed him. He sent his son. He killed his son. What's he going to do to those vine growers? And here's their answer, which is really interesting. They said to him, he will bring those wretches. Now, they're talking about themselves here, okay? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Now, you got to imagine this. Yeshua is saying he's the Son of God. He comes in God's authority. They're going to kill him. And they say that God will not only destroy them, but he's going to take their leadership and give it to the Gentiles. Look how Luke's account renders this. He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, may it never be. This is a form of the Greek word, God forbid, or may get am I. God forbid. This is the only place in the Gospels this expression is used. Paul used it a lot. It's thought almost too horrible to consider. God forbid that. He's going to take the vineyard away from us and give it to other people? He will come and destroy those vine growers. Now, historically, how did God destroy the vine growers? Well, I think you all know, 40 years later, the Roman armies came in, surrounded the city of Jerusalem, captured it, and the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, were led away in chains into captivity, the ones that weren't killed, and they were dispersed among the nations. God did exactly what He said was going to happen in this parable. So Yeshua is telling this parable. He tells of the past what happened. They killed the slaves. They're gonna, they're gonna kill the son. And not many days from this, they did kill the son. And then 40 years later, God came in and took care of them. So this parable is just literally 
fulfilled. He says, he will give the vineyard to others. Now, God, through the gospel, was preparing a new nation which would take the place of the old in which the Jews and the proselytes participated. That new nation was to create one new man from both Jew and Gentile through the work of the cross. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 2. For through Him, that's Christ, we both, that's Jew and Gentile, have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. See, once there was Jews, once there was Goyim, Gentiles, now Christ comes and unites them to Himself so that in Him there would only be one person, namely Christians. So there's no longer Jew, no longer Gentile, but Christians. But you are fellow citizens. Citizens, the adversive conjunction here, but or Allah, marks a strong contrast from the negative just stated. They were strangers, they were aliens, but now they're fellow citizens. And that's a form of the Greek word sumploetes. And the Greek word is not found in the Septuagint. It occurs only here in the New Testament. It's the opposite of foreigner. You're not a foreigner anymore. The goy, Gentiles, are now kingdom citizens. Previously in the Old Covenant, they were strangers, they were aliens. This brand new nation relied not upon natural descent from one man, but a spiritual rebirth in one man, Yeshua the Christ. Bringing harmony to all true children of God. So there's no difference now between Jew and Gentile. Because the nation of God is built around Yeshua. It's no longer geographical, but multinational. Now I want you to notice what he says here. He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints. Who is that? Who are the saints that he's talking about here? Well, who are fellow citizens with the saints? Talking to the Ephesians, I think primary Gentiles, but he says, your fellow citizens with the saints. Now, I think saints is a bad translation here because I think it gives us the wrong idea that, that he's trying to portray here, okay? We think of saints, we think of other Christians, right? I don't think that's what he's talking about. Alright, you've been brought into the family of God, your fellow saints. The word saints here is hagios. So this would be better translated, your fellow citizens with the holy ones. Who are the holy ones? Well, I think that's God's counsel, the divine counsel. And listen, believers, as, as we come to trust in Christ, we are literally brought into the family of God. We are part of that counsel now. We are fellow heirs with the holy ones. We are now sons of God. We are part of Yahweh's family. I think saints just throws us off the trail, basically. If you go back to the Old Covenant and look at the Holy Ones, you see that they are God's children. They are the divine council members. We are part of that now. That's incredible thought, people. Well, Yeshua then applied the lesson to the parable by appeal to the Scriptures in typical rabbinic manner. Okay, This is the message of finishing off a parable. You tell a parable, then you quote some Scripture. That's how the rabbis would do it. So Yeshua quotes the Scripture. He said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from Yahweh and it is marvelous in our eyes. Alright, so He says to them, 
did you never read in the scriptures? Now he's talking to the religious leaders, okay? These are the people who, you know, are teaching the people of Israel. They're the ones who supposedly know everything. He said, did you never read about Messiah in the scriptures? That's a dig, people. It's aimed at the biblical scholars of his day. Well, you guys don't seem to understand much of your own scriptures, basically, he's saying. And then he quotes the scripture. You see it in all caps again, so it's a quote. Anybody know where he's quoting from? This is a pretty familiar passage of scripture. Alright, this is Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He's saying this very son that you are rejecting will become the cornerstone of the new temple, of the new covenant, of a new way of life. Now, notice who it is that rejects the stone. It's the builders. I mean, who should have known a good stone when they saw one? The builders. This referred to the religious leaders, those who should have understood and known what the Scriptures said. Yet due to their spinning of God's Word to create a religion of self-dependence and legalism, they rejected Yeshua, the chief cornerstone. The stone which the builders rejected. The word rejected here, apodokimazo, it means to reject after scrutiny. In other words... They declared it useless. They didn't make a quick judgment, a spur of the moment. They looked at the stone. They examined the stone. They knew all about the stone. And they said, I reject it. They're like a bunch of stonemasons, Yeshua said, who thought a stone was useless. They studied it and declared it was the wrong size, the wrong shape, the wrong material. Discard it. And they turned their backs on it. But it turned out to be the cornerstone, the most important stone in the building And they didn't see that. They put a big stamp on it. Rejected. You know, they scrutinized Yeshua. He lived with them. They saw His holy life. They saw the miracles that He performed. They witnessed His power over the demonic world, the spiritual world. They heard His life-giving words. They saw Him raise the dead. But Yeshua didn't fit the pattern they had in mind for a Savior. So they said, reject Him. The blindness is unbelievable until you read in the Scriptures that God had blinded their eyes until you understand no one can understand the Gospel until God enlightens them. And this is so clearly seen through these religious leaders. They look at this Galilean rabbi and they think, nah, he's not the one. Let's reject him. Let's cast him aside. What they can't realize is this stone has become the foundation stone of God's covenant people. Now, when we think of modern day builders laying a cornerstone, often it's, you know, some kind of concrete box that contains newspapers or, you know, something to be read about whenever it gets torn down. You can read about the time that this thing was constructed. It didn't have that idea at all in Yeshua's time. The cornerstone was the key to the rest of the structure. The appropriate stone in size and shape would be placed strategically and the rest of the building might take its alignment from that stone. They set the cornerstone, then they build the whole building on that. It all goes off that stone. So with this as a metaphor, the biblical writers established that the kingdom of God would be founded upon Christ. Every detail of its dimensions, its shape, its size, its form relates directly to Christ. Without the cornerstone, the building has no value. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints 
and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation, the apostles and prophets, Christ Yeshua Himself being the cornerstone. All the building worked off of that. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing. Now you don't know too many buildings that grow, but this is a living structure. So it's growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built, present tense, together in a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Christ is the cornerstone to such a degree that the whole building, all the redeemed through all the ages are fitted and joined together in one, this holy temple, living temple in the Lord. Peter picks up that same thought and writes this in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. And coming to Him as a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, so Christ is a living stone, we are living stones, and you're being built up into a spiritual house. That's important. This is not a physical structure. It's a spiritual dwelling. For a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. See, the sacrifices in this new temple are not physical. They're not bloody. They're spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua the Christ. And just as Paul did, Peter describes the body of believers as a spiritual house or a temple that exists for the worship, praise, and declaration and glory of God. We're living stones that are joined to Yeshua who is the living stone. And he follows the next verse by declaring Christ a precious cornerstone. For this is contained in Scripture. So Peter's going to quote you some Scripture. Again, it's in caps. Behold, I lay in Zion a, cho- a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. Now, what is specifically implied in the cornerstone? We're not just built upon the person of Christ as grand and wonderful as he is as the God-man. He is the cornerstone rejected by men that is put to death on the cross, raised from the dead by the Father because He was our substitute before the wrath of God at the cross and in the resurrection. He died for us. He said, this came about from the Lord. And it's marvelous in our eyes. It's marvelous. The present tense implies this constant amazement on the part of all who understand what God has done in Christ on behalf of sinners. It should Cause amazement. Marvelous translates a word meaning wonder, amaze, something that is an object of wonder. When we realize what God has done for us in Christ, it should cause us to wonder. Now this verse in Matthew 21.42 is quoted from Psalm 18, as I said, verse 22 and 23. Does anybody know what the next verse in the psalm is? We put it into a song and we sing it. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, we often sing this as, this is the day, like today. Today is the day the Lord has made and we'll rejoice. That's a good thing to do, I guess. You should rejoice in each and every day, but that is not what he's talking about at all here. It's the day of the rejection of Messiah, which the readers to rejoice over. That God had in His mind to seal the salvation of His people through the one being crucified on their behalf. The encouragement is to praise God for the work of the cross rather than for the little literal 24-hour period that you're singing about. In other words, this is the day, the day that God ordained the crucifixion of Christ. 
This is the day the Lord has made. God did that for us. And let's rejoice. Let's be glad in that day. That's what we're singing. That's what we're praising. That He provided redemption for His people. Now, after quoting from Psalm 118, both Matthew and Luke add this. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So having established Psalm 182 as Messianic, Yeshua connects it with two other Messianic verses about a stone. One from Isaiah 18, which refers to stumbling on that stone, and Daniel chapter 2, which refers to being crushed by that stone. The Son is, on the one hand, a stone of stumbling. He's a cause of stumbling to the Jews. This was our Lord's role at the moment in time. In a passive way, in other words, the stone didn't move. The stone was there men stumble over it. He was a stumbling block to men who refused to acknowledge their sin and their need of a Savior. But the passive stone of stumbling whom the builders, the leaders of the nation rejected, was going to become an active agent in their destruction. Now he is viewed as a moving stone, a falling stone that crushes and grinds his enemies. We see this in Daniel chapter 2. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That's the kingdom of God. It will never be destroyed. No earthly power is ever going to take over this kingdom because it's a spiritual kingdom. It will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for other people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and this is a reference to Christ, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, and the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. So there's nothing hidden here, In this parable that Yeshua gives to the Sanhedrin, it was kind of in-your-face stuff. The teachers of the law, the chief priests, the elders, they flinched at the conclusion of Yeshua's words because they knew they didn't come out smelling too good in this parable. It was about them. Nobody said, hey, Yeshua, what do you mean? Who who is the vineyard and who are the vine growers? They understood exactly what was going on. They knew what he meant. And so they said when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. So they got it. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So they know they know the parables about them, but because they were afraid of the people, they didn't do anything. They heard it. They understood about him. They just walked away. Now, in a few days, they're going to arrest him. And they're going to put him to death, as Yeshua predicted in his parable they would do. Well, I want us to close this morning by skipping ahead a couple months in time from the time this parable is spoken. Alright? So Yeshua gives this parable, and if we jump into Acts chapter 4, it would have been a couple months after the resurrection of Yeshua. This would have happened in Jerusalem where all these events take place. I think it'd be fair to say that many of these religious leaders that he is talking to right now are the same people that we are hearing about in Acts chapter 4. Same religious leaders, same discussion. In chapter 3 of Acts, 
Peter and John heal a lame beggar in front of the crowd. You remember the story. Everybody knows it. Everybody confirms it. Everybody's up in arms about this. Well, these guys healed this man. And then we go into Acts chapter 4 and it says this. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Yeshua the resurrection from the dead. All right, it's been about two months since the resurrection, and these people run around proclaiming that. And they laid hands on them, and they put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed. So people are hearing this message of resurrection, and they're coming to faith in Christ. And the number of the men that came, about 5,000. Now, that's a big deal. All right, people are coming to faith in Christ. And it came about on the next day, that the rulers and elders and the scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. So again, this is just a couple months later from the discussion we just looked at in Matthew, Yeshua giving the parable. He's been put to death, He raised from the dead, and now these are the same people that are dealing with His disciples. And Ananias the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power... Or in what name have you done this? Again, they're asking the same question they asked Yeshua. Whose authority did you do this under? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to this sick man, they healed the lame man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Yeshua, the Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. This Here's why this guy's whole. And then he says this, He is the stone which the builders rejected by you. Now, that he makes it personal here, okay? He says, he's quoting from Psalm 118 again, but he says about the stone being rejected. But then he, Peter adds this, by you, the builders. You religious leaders, you're the builders. You're the one the parable was all about. It became the very cornerstone. Peter, he just is the same thing Yeshua had said a couple months earlier. Yeshua is dead now, so Peter's saying it. But he points to them, you're the builders. And there is salvation in no one else. There isn't another Messiah. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling. It just means they weren't educated by their schools. They were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Yeshua. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. In other words, it's hard to argue. This guy was lame. Now this guy's standing there with them and they're, they're attributing this to the resurrection and attributing this to Christ. And they don't have a reply. And so Acts 4.15 says, But when they had ordered them to go aside out of the council, they began to confer with one another. So the religious leaders are talking among themselves, crying, what shall we do with these men? I mean, this, we're in a predicament here, okay? Stuff's going on. we we got to stop this. For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem we can't deny it. Okay, we're kind of in a bad spot here. It's This stuff is happening. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, 
Let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. This is remarkable, people. Again, just a few months after the discussion that they had, they heard Yeshua saying these same words to them in Matthew. These are the same leaders. And now the death, burial, and resurrection had taken place. The evidence is overwhelming. Thousands upon thousands of people are turning to faith in Yeshua. And these religious leaders confer together and they say the fact that these men did a miracle, that's unmistakable. We can't argue with it. Everybody knows it. They can't deny it. There's no question it's true. At this point, you expect to hear, well, I guess we were wrong. I guess Yeshua is the Messiah and we need to put our faith in Him. But what do they say? we got to shut them up so nobody else hears about this. This is the blindness, okay, of men apart from a work of God. Whether it be a Jewish religious leader, whether it be just a pagan on the street, apart from a work of God in their life, men are blind to the truth. I mean, they witnessed the resurrection. They watched this lame man healed by the apostles. And they there was no denying it. Yet they did deny it. They said, no, we don't want any part of this. We've got to figure out a way to shut them up. And people, that's what's happening today still. As Stan told those stories today, they wanted to shut these Christians up. That's all they want to do. Shut us up. They don't want to hear the gospel because the gospel brings accountability. But that's our calling as Christians, to share with others. Now, as we share, if God opens their eyes, they'll come to faith in Christ. If He doesn't, they won't. It's God's work, but it's God's work that He uses us to participate in to share with others. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, it's amazing as you read stories like this, this parable of the vineyard. They knew the parable was about them. And they saw it and fleshed out. They killed the Messiah. They killed the Son just as Yeshua prophesied they would. And they still continued in their blindness. Father, we thank You for the Gospel of grace. And I thank You, Lord, that by Your power You brought us to faith in You, that we might see it, understand it, trust in it, and walk in it, Lord. And I pray that as You have called us to faith in You, that You would give us grace that day by day we might walk in a way that draws attention to our lives and calls others want to know more about the Yeshua that we serve. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.